0: Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Many of us down in southern Australia have been enjoying some warm weather in recent weeks, but this also raises fears about what could be to come for the fire season this summer as we head into an El Nino cycle. This comes after United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned at a recent Climate Ambition Summit of the dangers of continuing on the current trajectory of a global temperature increase of 2.8 degrees, calling it again for much, need, uh, much needed swifter action to draw down our carbon emissions. Cam Walker is campaigning coordinator at Friends of the Earth. He joins me now on the line. Hey, Cam, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Good to be here. And I want to start with the fire season. In addition to your work with Friends of the Earth, you volunteer with the CFA. What kinds of conversations are you having in that capacity as we prepare for summer?
1: I think everyone that pays attention to fire has been really aware that it's just been going off up north for a long time now. So we're seeing more than 2 million hectares in the Northern Territory has burnt so far, and a lot of that has been out of control, and a lot of that has required help from interstate, particularly from South Australia. Um, we're aware that there's fires in far north Queensland, as well as the more usual fire season um, in Queensland and New South Wales. So I think everyone's very focused on the fact that uh, it's only a matter of time before the fires start here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, does that sort of stretch resources at all, when the Fire season does really hit. How does that play into the way that, you know, the CFA and the like are able to address fires in different parts of the country?
1: Yeah, so it does impact locally because in times of bad fires, we fight fires by supporting each other. So from next week, for instance, my local brigade, we're on duty this summer, which means every week we need to have a crew ready to go pretty much at the drop of a hat. Uh, and we could be sent anywhere in the state. Uh, And also we send people interstate on an as-needed basis, so that's called being available for strike teams. And, you know, that all starts next week for us. And um, that's already been happening up north where they're sharing resources. And we have heard some worrying uh, situations, I was reading about a fire in Carnarvon Gorge inland in in the south of Queensland, I don't know if people know, it's a a really phenomenal national park, they've been struggling to get firefighters in there to to tackle a really big blaze and it's got such incredible vegetation it's gorge country so it's kind of dry semi-arid country and then you go down into gorges with phenomenal vegetation, they don't have enough firefighters to get on top of that fire and that's because local firefighters is a feeling they need to stick close to home. So already we're starting to feel the pinch. And when you have a long season and if you're away on strike team a lot and there are fires at home, that means that other people need to step up and fight the fires. And it does really become quite tiring a long season.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, catastrophic fire events are becoming more common and, you know, as Australians, I suppose, we come to expect that. You know, every few years there seem to be really devastating fires and that has, you know, very real and immediate impacts on, on so many people across the country. But there's also a sense that the more these events happen, they become normalised. In your blog, which I always get a lot from, you write about a phenomenon called shifting baseline syndrome, which is kind of prompted by your observations In the high country, in sort of mountain country and and looking out across, you know, recently burnt forests. Can you sort of talk a bit about shifting baseline syndrome and and why you think that's an important thing to be aware of as we confront both the bushfire season, but also the, the climate crisis generally?
1: Yeah, so we, all, all of us live in a point of time that's kind of moving forward. So it's like we look out the window and we see the world and often we assume what we see out there now is as it has been. And, um, as climate change, for instance, is making fire seasons longer and more intense, that's impacting on many forms of vegetation. So I know snow gums, alpine ash and alpine country best, but, you know, if you were someone who loved mangroves or mallee scrub or, you know, coastal heathland, you'd be experiencing the same thing. So people who are paying attention can see that in many instances, ecosystems are starting to face ecological collapse. But the average person, if they kind of go to the beach or go to the mountains, they might think, oh, this looks pretty normal. This is, you know, this is the way it always is. We've always had fire. So if there's all these dead trees, it must just be the way it is. So there is this notion of shifting baseline, baseline syndrome, which basically says that where you get environmental degradation at the local level people's kind of accepted thresholds for the conditions that they see out the window are constantly being lowered so that means that instead of looking out and seeing big old graceful trees you might see regrowth or you might see burnt trunks and over time when you see the burnt trunks rather than the old trees you think the The burnt trucks are normal and hence the baseline shifts over time. And then that makes it really hard for us to kind of understand how to manage country to bring it back to what it would have been before.
0: And I guess the key is trying to prevent fire as much as possible from going through those places again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, there's good fire and bad fire and this is a, a continent that has always burned. Um, and uh, there's also been a lot of cultural burning, of course. But we do know that fire is a pretty blunt tool, or can be, and so you've got to think very carefully about where you do apply it and how you apply it. I recently uh, participated in a cultural burn in central Victoria with Jojo Run people. And that was phenomenal, the attention to detail, the thoughtfulness, the way, uh, you know, fire was introduced to the land and allowed to move through the land slowly. You know, that was a really remarkable experience to see just how good that management was. But we also know that wildfires can be very destructive and sometimes they can be good, but often they're negative. And, And the example in the mountains is we are getting fires too frequently you know we're just getting fire year after year after year and we're used to big intervals between fires maybe 50 years or 80 years under normal conditions and the climate change conditions they come in every five or seven years and that's causing the snow gum forests to collapse
2: that is to you know to die and be replaced with grass and shrubs and so the secret
1: there is keep fire out while they recover they can come back from terrible fire but only if you keep the fire out until they're resilient again, and then you can allow fire back in.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this idea of shifting baseline syndrome and how it sort of plays into our broader engagement with climate change and global warming, and particularly efforts to you know reduce carbon emissions and keep warming to um, one point five degrees. I was reading Zali Stegel in the Saturday Paper recently, and she notes that you know we're seemingly in a deadlock uh, of limited ambition, this is her words, and distraction, and she has a real concern that leaders have lost sight of the actual goal of limiting heating to 1.5 degrees and highlights that, you know, we're on track for 2.8 degrees warming, which would be catastrophic. So what's your sense of of how our impressions of what's normal or even what's achievable is perhaps, you know, not being properly acknowledged as part of those climate ambitions?
1: It does often feel like we're now kind of talking by rote about holding warming to 1.5 rather than meaning it because we've pretty much already hit 1.5 but you know there's this kind of sense that oh we can't let go of the target and yet there isn't really a sense of urgency. We know that you know our federal targets are so much better under the current federal government than they were under the previous federal government and yet the federal government is new coal mines Mm. and, you know, the target that we've set is just not enough and it's the same globally and globally we are seeing some countries start to turn away from meaningful climate action. So we still have the rhetoric of, yes, it's urgent and we need to hold it to 1.5 but really if you were to, you know, look at, step back and look at where are all the nations at and where are we going then Zali's right, we're heading, you know, well beyond two degrees, probably into three degrees territory. There's still to act but we really have taken our foot off the pedal in terms of
0: climate action. Speaking with Cam Walker Campaigns Coordinator at Friends of the Earth and I just want to get your thoughts to end Cam on the High Court in Victoria um, ruling that the state's road use charge for low and zero emissions vehicles was unconstitutional Um, I mean transport accounts for around about 20% of, of emissions Australia as I understand it. Do you think this is kind of a significant decision or not so
1: much? Yeah, I think it is, and it's a little bit like a stone in a pond, and there could be some pretty interesting ripples that come out of it. For instance, because it was deemed that it was unconstitutional for states to have the power to impose an excise tax on consumption, that will probably stop uh, WA and New South Wales from doing similar charges. And it might actually lead to challenges on things like taxes on gaming, you know, car registrations, waste levies. So it could have a whole range of kind of downstream impacts that people didn't think about. Um, I think that it's reasonable that if you're going to drive a car, you contribute in some way to the costs of building the road and maintaining the road. And if you have a fuel or diesel car, you're paying a fuel excise. That's often criticised because not all that money actually goes into building roads. Uh, but it is going into the public purse. So the interesting thing now after this High Court challenge that was successful, that knocked off the state levy, will be what happens next. And I think the ball is now in the court of the federal government. And and the question is, will they introduce a national and a fair road user charge that doesn't disproportionately, uh, you know, impact on EV drivers, but means that everyone that does drive a car is paying a share of keeping
0: our road network operating. Yeah, and I know, again, spent some of the Teals who have been recording, uh, calling for this national um, road user charge as well. Monique Ryan is among a few who have called for that sort of you know national, federal approach as well. I, I mean, do you think that kind of approach could have any significant implications for drawing down emissions at all?
1: Yes, because we do want to support people to do the right thing. So we need to make sure that, EVs become more accessible to more of the uh, of the community. However the other side uh, you know EVs are a little bit like the shiny new thing yeah. and I think we do need to come back to well how do we plan our cities? Are they around mobility or are they planned around proximity? How do we think bring things closer to us being the things we need to do in our lives and when we do need to travel what are the options around public transport? So we really need to keep an eye on that and not focus too much just on the vehicles because in the Future, Hopefully there is less use of individual cars driving around cities and more active transport and public transport options that are really viable for people. So I think we need a big focus in this conversation. And it will be interesting to see a national road user charge that supports a shift to EVs while ensuring that, uh, you know, people who can't afford an EV, who are using an older car because, you know, that's what they can afford and they're paying more, how will they also not be adversely impacted by a new charge? So we really need to hardwire kind of equity consideration into how we... Build this new national road user charge if that's actually the path the federal government goes
0: down. Absolutely. Always great to have your thoughts on Triple R, Cam. Thanks so much and speak to you again
1: soon. Yes, thanks. Bye, Dylan.
0: Triple R. Amid all the news over the past couple of weeks, you might have missed that our friends across the Tasman had an election. New Zealanders went to the polls on October 14 and delivered a change of government with the National's leader, Christopher Luxon, replacing Labor's Chris Hipkins as Prime Minister, governing in coalition with the Libertarian ACT Party. As with all elections, there are many stories to tell from the results, and to help piece it all together, I'm joined by journalist and author Rebecca Holt. Welcome. Thanks for coming in.
2: You're right. Thanks, Dylan.
0: And so, I mean, October 14 was a busy day for you, I imagine, here in Australia and what was going on over in New Zealand. How did you spend it?
2: Uh, Oh, that was the day The Voice was voted on as well. So I was sort of watching that to cover back to New Zealand. It was, you know, it was a day of two uh, fairly significant events in both countries. So uh, keeping an eye on what was happening with The Voice, and as we all know, that was over pretty quickly. Uh, And then getting prepared for the uh, live stream of the New Zealand election. And and that was over pretty quickly too.
0: Yeah. And so did the result surprise you at all?
2: No. There there were some predictable occurrences. Uh, and the late polling, uh, sort of three days before the election, indicated that Winston Peters would be come back in and be... Um, Kingmaker again, uh, and Christopher Luxon, the leader of the National Party, the centre-right party, had not gone out early like Labour and said that he wouldn't uh, work with Peters. Uh, And so it was always, uh, if if National got enough and ACT got enough, that was always, they were hoping for a two-party arrangement. They didn't get enough to pull that over the line. They've only got enough seats for uh, the barest of majorities, which doesn't make any allowance for special votes, which are still coming in on November 3rd, Mm -hmm. to swing over to Labour, the Greens or to Party Māori. And so they need New Zealand First at this stage and Winston. uh, And he's a highly experienced political figure and... He's uh, one of my colleagues described him as like an octopus who knows how to hoover up various areas, put stick an arm out and <laughs> grab one point five from various disenfranchised groups.
0: Wow. and I mean, it, it was was it expected? <laughs> excuse me, that he would come back this time around because he'd sort of been in the wilderness for for the, well, for not long really. But um, what? How can we understand his resurgence?
2: Uh, He is a political animal down to the marrow of his bones so it's not surprising at all especially in a voting environment where people have felt that they have been over-governed after COVID. Mm. That that was a real point of... uh, That was a massive... Two problems for Labour who before COVID absolutely would have been a shoo-in for a third term because of their popularity but... COVID and the lockdowns uh, really hit them hard. And then coming into this campaign, Adairn resigned in January, handed over to Hipkins, and he came out of the blocks weak. He didn't hit it hard, and they didn't allow for the most prescient issue, which was cost of living crisis. Mm. Uh, They very much, like centre-left parties the world over, ignored... There were the working poor vote, and that's been just been a huge stuff up for them.
0: Yeah, and so where did those votes go predominantly?
2: Uh, they they split out. They, some of them seem to have gone to the Greens if they were that way inclined. Uh, the Greens did better than they ever have under MMP. Then they've, uh, some will have gone to Te Pāti Māori, uh, but. Uh, ACT and New Zealand First will have captured some of those as well that uh, more, uh, shall we say, uh, leaning towards uh, rhetoric of less government in your life.
0: Mm. And so as part of that, was was the, um, the, the National Party campaigning on kind of lowering taxes and that kind of thing, like suggesting there would be more money in the pockets of, of those people who might feel disaffected?
2: Yeah, and one of the problems was that they were... Uh, able to run a line which was found to be pretty fatuous uh, for three weeks before a union uh, economist um, crunched the numbers. So the the National Party campaign successfully ran a line for something like three weeks saying that uh, middle to low income New Zealand families would see around $250 returned to them uh, each fortnight. Now they missed out the magical words which was up to $250 a week. And it wasn't actual cash in your pocket. Parts parts of it were lower taxes. But uh, the media need to take responsibility for this back home because they didn't examine, they didn't crunch those numbers. And this Mm. is, you know, we're coming into interesting times in the life of the media where you see that these things go unchallenged until granular investigation is done by someone like a union economist who said, actually, do you know... the Amount of people that this um, uh, platform will affect is 3,000 families.
0: And by the time it's out there, people have already heard it and maybe made up their mind as well.
2: And don't, as we know, don't engage – You know, there's only a certain amount of tragics like ourselves that look at the headlines every day. Mm. So um, if they saw that two weeks before the election, they might not have checked into the news again. They might not. Um, and, and that's incredibly common.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to to sort of get more of your sense on the political sentiments in New Zealand because obviously Jacinta Ardern was a a very wildly popular leader internationally in particular and it's been noted that there was a bit of a disconnect between the way that New Zealanders... I mean, obviously she had a very successful uh, election in in 2020 but also was, was, you know, very heavily criticised for the COVID response and that kind of thing. What have sentiments been like over the past few years in New Zealand?
2: Hugely split. Hmm. So it's gone the people that felt that the reaction to COVID in terms of shutting the borders and locking down the entire country. And remember New Zealand's lockdowns, even though they were much shorter than Melbourne, they were incredibly, you couldn't walk down the road and buy a coffee uh, because everything was shut. You couldn't go to the bottle store, uh, you know, you could get your groceries, but there were only certain things Called, you know, essential outlets left open. So th- those lockdowns were harsh, even if they were b- very short. Uh, but that response, uh, the-, the numbers are in it saved 20,000 lives. Mm. So th- I think if I'd been uh, her advisor or press secretary, I definitely wouldn't have let her front the press conferences every day because she was overexposed and it became the response became something that she was identified with completely instead of spreading it out amongst the ministers and the health officials who were part of this decision making process so she took the hit and uh, and i think that was a, a woeful mistake on behalf of her staff
0: yeah, and we know that in parliamentary systems, of course, you know, governments govern, not just it's not sort of presidential, but there is a lot of emphasis placed on the leader, as there had been with Jacinda Ardern. What do we know about Christopher Luxon?
2: Uh, terrifically unrelatable person, Dylan. Uh, <laughs> very personally wealthy, uh, property portfolio worth of 21 million Uh doesn't drink uh, recently gave up diet Coke uh, has been a CEO uh, last salary was 4.2 million at Air New Zealand was CEO during a period in Air New Zealand I believe where they tried to do one of the most uh, culturally uh, ignorant things and trademark the word Kiora uh, so I if you report on politics, to say that there is a period of schadenfreude coming up uh, in terms of watching Mr Luxon would be understating it.
0: Yeah, right. And so... in terms of where things sit currently, it looks like the Nationals mainly the support of Winston Peters, New Zealand First, and the ACT party. Yeah, the ACT party. ACT yeah, party. Yeah. That's right. Tell us about the ACT party.
2: Oh uh, yeah, they are. It's always refreshing to be able to talk in opinions rather than. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I've dealt with uh, the ACT party's leader and Winston Peters. Very different creatures. They despise each other. Uh, David Seymour, they are... The ACT Party are died in the wall libertarians, uh, so the main thing about Seymour, he's been the only person in the party most of the time. They've only occasionally got a few other seats in. Uh, this time they've got a few other people, but they keep having to uh, divest themselves of certain candidates because difficult uh, social media posts keep popping up. Mm. Uh, so... The ACT Party doesn't attract what you'd call the best of uh, New Zealand uh, in terms of their candidates. So they are politically they're very traditionally libertarian. You know they not big on the climate, uh, want the roads to be in great shape for their Audis, don't want to pay for them. Um, their big dog whistle in this. Campaign has been to say that they would demand a referendum to look at dialing back the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the founding document of New Zealand. Mm. Now, even the previous national leader, um, PM John Key, is on the record of saying, "You should never do that. That will lead to the Hikoi's from hell. Hikoi being the Maori word for marches, and." he, he's exactly right. It will set the country on fire if that is uh, can even vaguely considered.
0: Yeah, speaking with author and journalist Rebecca Holt all about the um, election over in Altarilla over the past um, week and a bit. It happened on October 14. Some results still coming in, but it has delivered a change of government. And and on that, I mean, it's interesting to hear about those sentiments and the, the political salience, I suppose, of some of those views in light of what's happened in Australia with the, the, you know, the referendum going down on Indigenous voice to parliament and how that, you know, has exacerbated in some quarters racism and the like as well. It's been a really difficult experience for, for many First Nations people the other side to the story, I suppose, in, in, in New Zealand is that the Te Māori Party did pick up some additional seats. So tell us about how that came about.
2: That's right. So if you look at, you know, Labour suffered the worst loss of a sitting government in MNP's history. to Pāti Māori has had an incredible success. Uh, the youngest MP elected is a 21-year-old uh, who won the seat of Labour's Nanaia Mahuta, who'd been the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, a very serious, lifelong politician. Uh, so Hana Rafati Mapai-Clark, she became the youngest MP in 170 years to enter uh, New Zealand's Parliament wow. after the election. In the process uh, she's, as I said, she's unseated Nanay Mahuta, a very senior, respected MP, uh, and the and the very sweet thing with this uh, young woman, uh, her, and I have to count them, her great, 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 great grandfather, Wura Mukatani, was the first Māori minister to the Crown in 1872. Wow. So it's in her blood. Her auntie, Hanata Himara, was responsible for delivering the Māori language petition to Parliament in 1972, and this one, the following one always makes me feel a bit old. In 2018, her grandfather, Taitimu Maipai, made headlines because he vandalised a Statue of uh, Captain John Hamilton, the namesake of Hamilton City, in protest against Hamilton's colonial legacy and brutality towards. What a Maori. fascinating
0: history! Wow. And so, what is Parliament's? How is it likely to function with the additional of some uh, Te Pāti Māori seats and and some Greens as well, but also quite a difficult coalition it looks like between the Nationals, the ACT Party, and Winston Peters' New Zealand First.
2: So. With the success of Te Pāti Māori, it looks like there'll be a thing called an overhang, so Mm. they'll have to add two extra seats. Uh, It it doesn't essentially change how they function. It just means that Te Pāti Māori had an exceptional uh, showing. Um, What it means for National is that they almost definitely have to negotiate with Winston uh, uh, Peters to get New Zealand first into that three-way coalition, Uh, not what... ACT would have wanted, Um, what it means for New Zealanders, I think, is that, I'm going to utter a sentence possibly unsaid by almost anyone in political journalism in years, I believe Winston may keep uh, David Seymour of the ACT Party uh, from realising his worst instincts. Mm. So... Even though uh, Winston's not shy of a dog whistle and the odd bit of race baiting, and he, I think him and Seymour, the only thing in common they've ever had is that uh, you know, non-gendered toilets make them both deeply uncomfortable. Um, so they're not afraid of flirting with that side of the spectrum, but I think Winston Peters likes to get that clap on the back knowing he's done the right thing far more than Seymour does. Uh, so, and the difference with Winston is that he's had portfolios before he's been Deputy Prime Minister uh, and if you look at the New Zealand First policies, they are far more economically nuanced in terms of what they're about than rather than the ACT Party uh, ones which are all about repealing gun laws that went through after the um, mosque massacres in right. Christchurch
0: Is that and, I mean, how how popular is that among people over there?
2: Oh, again, like I said about the you know the kind of octopus to Hoover up one point yeah. five. It's it's that it's a very cynical capturing for those small parties uh, that need. Okay, we're going to run the numbers. That's going to get us this many vote party votes.
0: Yeah. In an article for Crikey, you liken the negotiations um, happening at the moment in New Zealand as like negotiating the terms of an open relationship. (laughs) So It sounds like it may be quite quite difficult over there.
2: Or watching your parents negotiate an open relationship. (laughs) I tried to make it really gross.
0: Even worse. (laughs) Um, Are there any implications for the sort of Australian government's relationship with the New Zealand government?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, There will be because... Uh, Luxon, head of uh, the National Party, that's centre-right, uh, the major party, and ACT and New Zealand First have all run on uh, tough-on-crime, wanting to reintroduce the uh, three strikes, uh, wanting to put more beds in prisons. One of the things that uh, Labor had successfully done was to dial back the amount of uh, prisoners and uh, they'd reduced the number of uh, people in prisons by 27% during their term. Mm-hmm. Now, under this coalition, they're looking at dialling up um, beds, building prisons. Act said they wanted to spend $1 billion on building prisons. Uh, I think the New Zealand First, this one always cracks me up, they wanted to put everyone who was associated uh, with gangs who had had been sentenced into the, a supermax prison, which I said, well, it's kind of like a finishing school. I don't know how sensible that is. Um, And criminologists that I work with frequently find these kind of tough-on-crime motifs through these parties uh, equally just as silly because, you know, one of the criminologists I work with has said, you know, a a boot camp's just a place where you send young criminals to get a tiny bit fitter.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen um, criminal justice issues weaponised a lot in in elections here, particularly in Victoria as well. Um, Look, I know so many listeners would have connections to New Zealand to be familiar with what's happening there, but many of us don't as well. And I think it's really important to be kept up to date with political happenings. It's been a pleasure having you on Triple R. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Dylan. RRR.
0: The music streaming and sales platform Bandcamp has changed hands for the second time in two years, with the music licensing startup SongTrader acquiring the company from Epic Games. This latest sale has raised fresh concerns the platform could move away from its musician-friendly model, with artists historically able to receive more revenue through the platform than others such as Spotify. Manuel Mayberg is a journalist and founder of the tech website 404 Media. Manuel has been reporting on this issue and joins me now on the line. Hello, thanks so much for for coming on Triple R.
3: Hey Dylan, thank you for having me.
0: My absolute pleasure. And uh, I mean, did this surprise you, Bandcamp being acquired by a second company uh, once again, the second time in two years?
3: It is surprising, but I think as you mentioned, it's the second time the company was acquired in uh, just uh, a couple of years. And I wouldn't say that this move is more confusing than... Epic Games acquiring it initially, and I think that's kind of where um, the chaos here really begins. Epic Games, um, your listeners, if they know it, they probably know it through Fortnite, which is a game it develops. And when Epic Games acquired Bandcamp, everyone was wondering, why is this game developer, this company that makes a a popular video game engine, why is it acquiring this uh, kind of indie music platform? we never really got an answer to that question uh the answer basically came in the form of this sale to uh song trader um so yeah i would say the 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 confusion starts back at the epic games acquisition
0: Yeah. And there were concerns, you know, similar to now that the sort of independent ethos that's underpinned Bandcamp would be jeopardised by that initial sale in March 2022. Do you have much of a sense of of whether anything substantial changed about how Bandcamp was managed and, you know, the the amount of revenue that could be returned to independent artists?
3: Um, So for the... The latter question, no. I think so far there hasn't been a change. I'm not aware of a change. Uh, That doesn't mean there won't be one. I also know because I'm in contact with the union and uh, employees there, current and former, it is still, I would say, my opinion of it, having talked to them very much like a mission-driven group of people. I think they really believe in the product. They really believe in the mission. They really believe in independent music. They really care about what they do. Management has changed. Um, I don't know how it affects their day to day, but it is much different being part of a big corporation like Epic Games or Song Trader than it is um, just being like your own little group. Um, the other obvious big change I mean, there's no way of, of, of uh, sugarcoating this, but Song Trader or rather I should say Epic Games during the sale, it offloaded, or that's a euphemism, it laid off a a giant uh, uh, amount, a number of of employees. So it is a different platform today. It's a different company today because it's much smaller. Um, The editorial team that works on uh, Bandcamp Daily, uh, they've been greatly reduced. So it is different. I think it's uh, too soon to say how it will change. I don't know if it will change that much for artists for uh, for regular customers for the, the people who work there. Maybe they leave it small, maybe they hire back up. I think part of what's frustrating for them is they're really not sure what's going to happen. They're, they're waiting to find out just like everyone else is.
0: Yeah. And as part of your reporting into this, you've uncovered that some of those who have been laid off were the union representatives within Bandcamp itself. What have you heard from those who have been laid off? I mean, you know, are they suggesting that that was deliberate or have they just inadvertently been caught up in this very large scale um, firing?
3: So I would personally Avoid myself. I don't want to speculate on what song traders' intentions yeah. are. I, I can tell you that the union is understandably very upset. Um, I don't know um, if you're unionized at Triple R, but um, I, I was part of a union. I was a part of the uh, a bargaining committee at a union, and that's when your peers, your coworkers, your fellow union members, they vote for you to come to the company, come to the come to management, and and bargain, you know, and advocate for you, um, and a bank cap. There, there were eight of those members, and all of them were laid off uh, during this transition. And just logistically, it's a nightmare. Like uh, they're very determined; they'll keep fighting, they'll keep advocating for themselves. They have been since, um, but as you can imagine, that's very disruptive. Now, obviously, so many union members being laid off, the entire bargaining committee being laid off i I think it's impossible for them not to feel that at at the very least the 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 song trader and epic games they didn't care they didn't care about the union right because Mm -hmm. uh these layoffs hurt them uh so badly but song trader insists to me that they made this decision based on other factors and in fact they also claim that when they made this decision, they didn't have access to union membership, so allegedly they didn't know the people they were laid, laying off were a uh, part of the union.
0: Yeah, and what more can you tell us about Song Trader itself? I mean, this is a country, a, a, a company that has roots in Australia. What do they do, and 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 what do you kind of have have you gleaned from their operations that might you know give some indication of what they're doing with Bandcamp?
3: So Song Trader. I imagine, unless you're in the business, unless you're in the music business, I imagine most people don't know about it, and that's you know it's, it's by design. It's not because they're like a non-successful company. They're in fact very successful. Um, they, but, but they're in a in the business-to-business, uh, what they call B2B market. Right. It's basically a marketplace where I, as an artist, can put up my music, and then if a company is making an ad or needs a soundtrack for something, they can just like license it from this platform and it just connects those two, uh, on their platform. And they claim to be like the largest of its kind, the largest platform of its kind in the world. Um, so it's very successful. How does Bandcamp fit into that? I really, I really don't know. Again, it goes back to to Epic Games. How does Bandcamp fit into Epic Games? Uh, They'll say they have plans that it can help grow their community, but we're just waiting to see.
0: Yeah, Speaking with Emmanuel Mayberg, one of the founders and reporter of 404 Media and an American tech website talking about the latest sale of Bandcamp. Um, the song trader has acquired Bandcamp, the second company in two years to, um, to acquire the company. And part of that confusion, I suppose, around what the plan might be for Bandcamp, does that some, to some extent reflect the fact that Bandcamp is a bit of a unique beast? It's one that really has thrived on... I suppose, you know, supporting artists, independent artists, and and a lot of people, you know, that I know and myself included have gravitated towards the platform because it's more than just a place to access music. You actually feel like you are supporting artists through purchasing their music via the platform itself.
3: Yeah, I would say it's unique for several reasons, right? So one is the reason you mentioned, right? Um, You have a tech ecosystem where the norm is that tech platform take 30% of what people are selling there, right? So, and that's across Amazon and iTunes, but also in other uh, industries. Like if you buy a video game on Steam, Steam also gets 30%. Uh, and obviously uh, Bandcamp, I think the, the norm for them is 15. That's much better for artists. And then during the pandemic, they started Bandcamp Friday and during which artists would make the entirety of of, of the sale, right? Like Bandcamp would forfeit its... It's cut. Mm. Um, so that that is unique, right? And that fosters, I think, certain types of artists and certain types of users who, like, are really... They really care and really want to support artists. But then there's also this other aspect of it, uh, which I'm a bit more familiar with because it's editorial, which is my business, but there's Bandcamp Daily, right? Yeah. So it's not just... It's not like I mean, iTunes does have an editorial component to it, right? When like when you go to the App Store and you read little blurbs about what apps are, there's an editorial team there. But Bankham Daily really had a voice, and is more akin to I don't know a pitchfork or something like that. Um, and that also fosters this sense of community and really caring about um, music. And that team was was hit pretty badly. So um, kind of we need to see how much they'll publish, if they continue to publish.
0: Yeah, and it's been reported that you know 50% of, of Bandcamp's staff has been laid off at this current stage. I mean, you, you don't lose that proportion of of a workforce without there being some implications for what's produced and how it might operate. Where do you, you imagine we might see those changes? Like, will it be on the editorial side? Will it be more in the kind of function side? What's your sense of that based on, on those you've spoken to?
3: So my understanding that everybody every department had cuts and some of that is probably what you get whenever there's an acquisition there's redundancies right so it's like song trader already has someone that's doing the same job that a band camp employee was doing so that person was cut and that's a cross department in addition to that it seems again the editorial department was hit pretty hard and then i've also heard customer support which is concerning right mm. um you know uh, Customers are the lifeblood of, 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 of Bandcamp. Um, but maybe that's also a redundancy. We don't know. Bandcamp, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, SongTrader might have its its own support team and it thinks it can take over and it will be just as good, if not better.
0: Yeah. And so where does your reporting on this go from here?
3: Well, I guess what, what to be frank, what is most interesting to me here is that we're seeing a growing movement for unionization in tech in the U S across the board. And this was a part of that. It's, it's a, it's a unique beast, right? Mm. It's not, it's not as if we're seeing a union at Amazon or if we're seeing a union at um, uh, Google or something like this, but it's like, so these are tech jobs and they're unionized and then people go off to other companies and they maybe bring like the seed of unionization with them. So I think it's important for that reason. And, you know, tech companies do this all the time. Like we see consolidation in this business all the time. You see a bunch of startups, the startups get bought up. Uh, they get folded into bigger companies. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious to see how the union handles this is is song trader going to become uh, a unionized company because of this. Is this, ha, was this some sort of, and I'm not saying it is, I want to be very clear yeah. about that, but it's like, was this some sort of intentional move to like crush the union or is it just carelessness, but it's going to have that effect anyway.
0: What's the sense from those who have been on the inside that, that you've spoken to? I'm, I mean, is, is there an ability for a, a, a strong union to arise out of this at Bandcamp?
3: camp? I think always, mm. there's always, a, there's always, uh, it's always possible. Um, I think any, any, Any organization in which uh, workers believe they deserve more is always just, um, and it's hard, I'm not trivializing it, but it's like people get together, they sign union cards, they start a union, they bargain, they get there, they win. It's doable. Like The law protects this process, and and it can happen. Um, And it can happen here as well. I mean, there's still a union. They still are advocating for themselves, for the people who were just laid off. Um, and I think people still really care about band camp. So I think as long as people stay there, as long as they're willing to fight, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I I think it, it definitely, definitely it can continue to unionize and get a good contract and, um, protect its mission yeah
0: that's right a lot of people do still care about band count. that's absolutely right it's been um, great having your insights on this um well done on all your reporting on it and look forward to continuing to read your work in 404 media thanks so much thank you so much triple r on fm digital online by the app Normie Rowe is an Australian pop legend. who produced a string of hits back in the 1960s that saw him topping charts and touring extensively. That all came to... A temporary halt when he was called up for army service back in 1968, thankfully he returned in one piece and continued on with his recording career, also turning his mind to acting with many appearances over the years on the stage and the screen. Now, Normie's returning to where it all began, playing at R's special takeover at the Northcote Theatre for the 86 Festival this Saturday, and ahead of that, Normie joins me on the line. Hello, how are you going? Oh,
4: really good, thanks Dylan, good
0: to be with you. Yeah, thanks for, for coming on board the show, and um, where are you at the moment?
4: I, I, well, I now live uh, right at the end of the northern end of New South Wales, just before you cross the border into Queensland. Uh, I got married again recently to a beautiful lady uh, about uh, 12 weeks ago. Oh, and, congrats. And we've taken up residence uh, here. It's just quite beautiful. We love it. Um, but we both come from Melbourne.
3: Right.
4: Samantha and her brother used to own the the hotel in Collingwood, the Smith Street Collingwood, called The Grace Darling, which was a a birthplace for a lot of very wonderful artists uh, uh, in, in the times that they had them. People like Bigger and Linda Bull and Paul Kelly and... Uh, oh, goodness me, she goes, She knows more people in show
0: business than I do. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, that place, birth of the Collingwood Football Club as well, of course. But, um, but, yeah, That's right, yeah. Yes. I'm glad you know that. That's I great. I do.
4: You should have seen her on grand final day. <laughs> <laughs> she was exhausted by the end of it. She ended
0: up in bed at six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty similar to my grand final day as well. I, um, yeah, I'm a mad pie, so yes, it was a pretty special day. Um, so we well, So connections to the Grace Darling, and I mean your connections to, to Northcote go back such a long way uh, as well. Tell us about growing up in the region and um, and you know going to, to school in Northcote High and the like.
4: Well, I went I uh, I went straight from the, the Women's Hospital, Royal, Royal Women's Hospital, uh, to our place in Charles Street, Northcote, right in the bottom corner as it uh, as you cross the the uh, bridge on St. George's Road, the Mary Bridge, over the Mary Creek. Um, I went to school at what is now the Mary State School, but I in, when I first went there, it was the Miller Street State School. Um, and it, there were so many people that, that came out of that area, you know, people like Bert Musen, um, Noel Ferrier went to our primary and secondary school, Northcote High School. Uh, there was... Uh, Jack Massa, who used to run the Ford Company internationally and a whole bunch of other things, Um, you know, and John Kane, actually. (laughs) 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 I think his big claim to fame is he cleaned up the Merry Creek. (laughs) Well,
0: I've got to thank him for
4: that. Well, at least, you know, uh, people are not dying from from all sorts of uh, germ-ridden... Oh, I don't know, it was a, it was a pretty grubby place when I used to go and I wasn't allowed to go to the Merry Creek, but we did anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, it is a, a beautiful stretch now and it's been really cleaned up and re-vegetated and, um, yeah, it's a great place to spend time. I mean, musically, what was your experience like sort of coming up in, in that, that world? Like, who were you playing with when you really first discovered music and decided that's what you wanted to do with your time?
4: Well, I, I, I guess I was a really little kid when I when I caught the bug. Um, it's never concerned me getting up on a stage like most people. And um, when I was uh, three or four years old, I guess, uh, my parents would take us kids out with them, and if there was a band playing, I, I'd end up on the stage uh, singing along to them. I was sick. Uh, <laughs> That's I couldn't see that, that that was an unusual thing i guess <laughs> but um our our household was always a very gregarious uh, outgoing fun loving household uh, and Dad was a secretary of the fundraising section of the Albion Hotel over the road and they raised lots and lots of money for the uh, blind babies and uh, uh, and the austin hospital appeal and the and the uh, Good Friday Appeal, they they used to run all sorts of fundraising things. Um, And uh, so, so we all had, always had something happening around our house. So I guess uh, that was a kickstart for me as well.
3: Yeah.
0: And, I mean, this festival that you're appearing at, the 86 Festival, it's really celebrating all the venues across the stretch of that 86 tram line, especially up around sort of Northcote, Thornbury, Preston kind of region. And, look, some of those venues are really old and have been there for a long time. Some are much newer as well. What was that stretch like for you? Like, is that a place that you were were, were gigging a lot and, and playing around with other musicians and stuff?
4: Well, there was... Um uh, early, early when, in, when we were about twelve, I, I used to sing with a, another Northcote High boy, uh, Mel Clark, who lived in in Northcote, uh, and he he went to a, a church where they had church dances, so we would go and sing Everly Brothers and uh, Buddy Holly songs together. Um, then, and then we went to uh, the Maccabean Hall up at uh, Thornbury. That was about our first ever gig together, as I recall. We got the tram to our gig, carrying <laughs> 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 an amplifier and a guitar. It was really funny. We only had a repertoire of half a dozen songs, and we just kept repeating them all, mind everybody. <laughs> just, <laughs> they just danced and enjoyed it. Um, and that, that was more of uh, the Jewish society at the Maccabean Hall. Um, and then we were at the Elfington Methodist Church uh, as we got together, found some other people um, in, in our school that played instruments and, and sang. Um, so uh, Marty Christian, who was with the New Seekers, and uh, a couple of other people who have done fairly well, um, Mick Flynn with the Mixtures. And, you know... <laughs> We there were a lot of people. Deborah Byrne came from that area. Yeah. Uh, uh, Johnny Chester, of course, one of my great idols. I, I always, I was always enamoured with Johnny Chester and the Chessmen and the Thunderbirds. And then, uh, through the auspices of Stand the Man, wrote on Three KZ. Uh, he took me to Preston Town Hall when I was, when I was thirteen, I guess. Um, and I got up and sang with the Thunderbirds, and I'd only—I'd never met them, never seen them, because in those days there was no, pretty much not, not much in the way of television or anything for local artists in, in Melbourne. Um, you know, music television was Sydney oriented so much. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, I got to meet all these fantastic people, um, and you know, people like Colin Cook, who was a wonderful singer handsome man my god (laughs) he was uh, I think if I wasn't uh, as straight as I am I probably would have fallen in love with him (laughs) I could see the the girls who were just standing there goggle eyes but he was also a great singer and I heard that he'd been um, taking singing lessons so I asked him if he could if he was taking lessons and he said yes and I said well would it be possible to have the name of your singing teacher because I want to learn how to sing properly? which he he gave me, Jack White's number. Uh, I phoned. then the next thing I knew there you know, I was learning, um, doing all my singing uh, practice and everything. Uh, of course, I wasn't a stranger to um, music education because I think I was about ten years old when I'd grabbed my guitar. on a a Thursday night, get on the tram, 10 years old, get on the tram, go into the city, go to the uh, Victoria Banjo Club, have my lesson, go to the Crown coffee shop in Swanson Street and get on the tram and
0: come back home. Yeah, right. 10 years old. (laughs) 10 years old. God, I would I wouldn't let a fifteen year old do that today. No, well you don't see too many ten year olds heading down to, you know, band practice or whatever on the tram these days, maybe with a glass of milk in tow or something. Um, it's that that's a really amazing history. And I guess, you know, you play all around the place. You have got quite a busy, you know, touring schedule coming up as well. But, you know, returning to your old haunts, playing on High Street there, does that sort of mean anything to you? Is there a special sort of connection you feel with that? Part of the world still,
4: uh, yeah, of course. Also, I was a a trainee PMG technician, a telephone technician, uh, with the organisation that is now Telstra, and um, I used to work during the week at the Norfolk Telephone Exchange, and I was a choir boy at the uh, the Epiphany Church over the road, just up from Clark Street and High Street. Yeah, um, and uh, you know. Uh, so much of my life, I learned to swim at the Northcote Baths, which in those days were just off Mitchell Street. Um, I think Northcote Baths these days are down on down at Fairfield. But but uh, like so many people, if you if you happen to be have grown up in that area, uh, the guy who used to run the bath, Joe Fogg, was responsible for so many kids never drowning. Yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> a grumpy old bugger, but but nevertheless, um, you know, we, the community we, service. <laughs> oh, you know, we used to love going to the bars. So it was fantastic. Yeah. In, especially in summertime, of course. But but um, you know, I mean, you wouldn't swim in the Mary Creek in those days. Uh, and and going to the beach was a, a little bit far. but we'd walk up to the, go up to the bars two or three times a day. Um, it was a long walk. I to show you, we're ready to jump in the pool once we got there on a hot
0: day. I bet. Well, they've been um, redeveloping the, the Northcote Pool. I don't know if it's going to be quite open and ready for um, for your arrival this Saturday, but it's imminent, I believe. Wow. So, yeah, brand-new pool down there on um, on Station Street, I think it is.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I think it is too, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, a lot of my um, formative years, obviously, were in that area, and then the, the first big dance that I ever sang uh, it was uh, Preston Town Hall, um, and that was that was an amazing beginning. Uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you're still, performing today which is is remarkable and i'm kind of struck by you know people have seen paul mccartney over the past um a couple of days here playing in melbourne and people just you know reporting such a joyous experience seeing him do his thing obviously at a time when there's a lot of doom and gloom around at the moment um and i've read that you know he's talked about how he just you know still gets so much out of touring and playing to these adoring fans what keeps you going
4: same thing. I, I enjoy doing, it. and I enjoy meeting the people after the show too. <clears throat> we, pardon me, we uh, uh, we always. I mean, we've got some merchandise for people to to have a look at, to take away as a memento, all that sort of stuff. But that's not the reason uh, we have it. The reason is that these people have been our supporters for an entire life, you know, and and we've lived life together virtually, you know.
1: Um, and
4: yeah. I like to hear the stories. Oh, when I heard that song of yours, such and such, I was doing, I was out in the outback and, and I heard it, I had had this Aboriginal guy right up uh, in Arnhem Land uh, and he came up and, and, and he, and there was no radio or any, even then, probably 10, 15 years ago. And he he came up to me and he said, "Normie, right? Normie, right? Normie, right?" And <laughs> he once will do it. <laughs> and, he, and he said, oh, oh, I've been listening to you, and I'm thinking, how the hell has he been listening to me?" He said, "On the on on radio, uh, uh, radio Australia on the t- on the um, what do you call it? On the shortwave."
0: Yeah, yeah, wow. Said,
4: on the shortwave, and he, said, oh goodness me, and you know, I. It was such a special moment for me because that—that's called remote. I'll tell you, it was really remote
0: and music finds a way of finding people and it does mean so much to people you know who carry these memories throughout the years based on what they were doing at a certain time when they saw someone or first heard an album and you know your music stretches back you know so long and, and means so much to so many people um i mean for this gig as part of the 86 festival it's a really you know great festival overall because there's a whole bunch of very different types of, of bands and artists and djs and the like coming together on that that 86 tram line stretch for this um triple r takeover i mean you appearing on the same stage as uh, Delivery, Party Dozen, Kite, Briggs, 1300. Such an amazing and very different mix of acts. I mean, what does that mean to you, appearing on the same stage as, as probably, you know, some, some artists you might not necessarily come across as part of your normal touring?
4: Well, that's right. Um, one of the great things about doing concerts like this, it, it's similar to doing, uh, doing uh, telephones, and um, you, you, you know about these people, you hear about them, but you don't get a chance to work with them. It sort of ships in the night. Uh, and then when you meet them, it's like you already know these people, you know. Uh, and, and it's also a wonderful opportunity for uh, cross-fertilisation with your entertainment, your music, and the way you present your music. Um, I like to have a, a bit. of... I've been around the, the block a few times now, and I love to have a talk to people about what their what their desires are and why they are in the industry, what what they want to do with their industry, with their with their music and and their entertainment uh, uh, desires.
0: Yeah, and what's your set list like these days?
4: Well, I, I usually stick to a, a lot. One of the big problems is, is what not to play. Yeah. Uh, because we had, the Playboys and I had 11 top 10 records in a row uh, between 65 and pretty much between 65 and when I went into the Army. Uh, probably halfway through that, we still had a couple of songs, Penelope um, and Turn Down Day. And that over that period, that five, eight-year period, um, we had all of those hits, and it's hard to to leave stuff out because people come up and say, what about such and such? In fact, just recently, a friend of mine who's now running the Seven Network uh, right through, through Queensland phoned me the other day, and he said, what about Elizabeth? Do you still do Elizabeth? And I said, yeah. He said... Um, That's a a fantastic song, and I think it's really weird because when it was released, it was only ever played in Brisbane. It went to number one and stayed there for five weeks, but it never got played anywhere else. So any time we do it in, say, Melbourne or Sydney, it's the first time that most people have ever seen it or heard it. Yeah, right. So, so, and yet, uh, sometimes you're... um, your, your musical output is in the hands of some people who are sort of pretty, at best subjective about the music. I, I remember uh, when John Farnham was Johnny Farnham and he had a, a song out, it was a really terrific song. I think it was the cover of a David Cassidy song. And the music director of 3XY said, Johnny Farnham, he's had his shot. I wonder. I wonder how stupid he felt when John came came back with with all those wonderful from from help onwards and all the way through to the Your Voice and all those other I wonder how stupid uh, this guy must have felt, having said that John Farnham has had his shot.
0: Well, I read somewhere that you were told that you couldn't sing back in the day as well.
4: Yeah, and once again, subjective. You see, yeah, what. I Also, apart from that, Dylan, um when I was uh, when I was uh, given the role of Jean Valjean in uh, Les Misérables, uh, the, the opera critic for the Australian Maria Perrault, said, "Normie Rowe in the balcony busting uh, role of Jean Valjean in Les Misérables, you've got to be joking." <laughs> <laughs> And and uh, I don't know whether we, she saw the headlines after we opened, but it said Norman Rowe, a triumph. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the whole the whole point I, I try to make is, unless you've actually, uh, unless you've actually seen some of this stuff or heard some of this stuff, yeah, you, know, you can't be too critical, and, and judgment is not a good thing to to uh, carry along in your life. Because unless you've walked a mile in their shoes, whatever it is, um, it's its its unobjective to uh, to criticise.
0: Yeah, kind of great reminder not to be you know limited by the limitations others might might put on you as well. For you know, for many of yeah, us. Well, that's- who might, yeah, who might have imposter syndrome and the like, which is such a familiar experience. Um, it's going to be such a great day down here in Northcote on Saturday. It's been a real pleasure having you um, back on the Triple R Airwaves to talk all about it. Um, best of luck with your flight down here and, um, yeah, hope to see you down there on Saturday night.
4: Well, that's nice. Could you mention that to the pilot? because <laughs> I, I figure that if he has a good trip then there's a good chance I will
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point yeah no turbulence thanks very much <laughs> that,
4: that'll be fine by me <laughs>
0: <laughs> cheers Normie um, it's been great thanks, to
4: chat and anybody who wants to take the yabbing in the Merrick Creek again I'd love to go
0: <laughs> well it's all looking pretty pretty clean at the moment last time I checked so the invitation's out there thanks Normie catch you again soon
4: bye Dylan cheers. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues and culture program on Triple R. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9 a.m. to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.